Please open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2 this morning. 1 John chapter 2. Two weeks ago I began what I didn't really know was going to be how to... How do we close out this chapter in our lives? And it has turned into a, a sermon series just simply I've entitled Abiding in Christ. And for those of you who are guests with us here today, um, the whole staple of the ministry of Covenant Life Church has been the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Not only for our salvation, yes for our salvation, ultimately for our salvation, but for everything in life. Jesus is, uh, for the true believer, um, our Savior, that through His life, death, and resurrection, our sins before the face of a holy God can be forgiven because Christ paid the penalty on the cross. God poured out His wrath upon Jesus in the place of His children, and you and I have a relationship with a holy God on the basis of Christ's righteousness and death in our place. He is our Savior. But for so often, the Christian life stops there. Jesus is never more than the Savior. Well, Jesus is not only Savior, He's Lord, He's King, He's the treasure of the true believer. One of the things we've emphasized over the course of the years is what historic Christianity has always taught, the defining characteristic of a true believer. How do you know you're a believer? What is, the, what is something you can hang your hat on and say, this is, I'm, I'm not perfect in it, but this is at least how I know I'm on the right track to assurance of salvation. It is not a prayer you prayed. It is not a baptism you you had once, twice, maybe three times. It is not the church you joined. It is not your friends patting you on the back and telling you you're the best Christian they know. The defining characteristic historically has always been love for Jesus. Love for Him. In fact, Jesus made it so clear, if your love for me doesn't make your love for your family look like hatred, meaning not you hate your family, but your family, in the midst of how much you love them, says, I know he or she loves me, but it's nothing in comparison to the way they love Christ. Where love for Christ isn't found, you find a soul that's dead in sin and trespasses. And so that's been the message of Covenant Life Church. It's trying to cultivate love for Jesus, not by me trying to tell you, hey, you need to love Jesus. I can't make your heart love something it doesn't love any more than I can make my heart love something it doesn't love. But the promise of God's word is that as we just gather and uphold, behold your God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look at the glory, the beauty, the majesty of Christ. Every week, look, 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 that the Holy Spirit of God conquers our heart, that at one time finds no attraction in Christ. All of a sudden, we find in Him is everything. And to Him be all the glory. The staple of this ministry has been looking unto Jesus, whether we're gathered or whether we leave here. It is imperative for your eyes and my eyes to be fixed on Jesus, because in Him our hope is found. It's only by gazing upon Him, what does the old hymn say? And the things of earth grow strangely dim. In the light of His glory and grace, in the light of His beauty, His excellency. So if we are finding that the things of earth are more beautiful than Christ is, what I've got to ask my heart and your heart is, I'm probably not looking at Christ. That's been the message. And knowing that I, as your shepherd, now this is my last opportunity to drive that message home. 
the theme of the last few messages has been one of abiding in Christ. Meaning this, we're about to all go our separate ways. Not forever. We're going to gather again in that great worship service around the throne of grace. But my plea to you and to my own heart as we go our separate ways, the message of Christianity doesn't change. Whatever church you go to, the message cannot change. Our great responsibility is now to take what we've been living upon and abide in it. Cling to it. Don't let it go just because we all will now be joining other churches. Churches. Abide in Him. Two weeks ago, we saw abiding in Christ as being a defining characteristic of a true believer. We saw that from John chapter 8. Last week, we talked about abiding in Christ from John chapter 15 as being a comfort to hurting disciples. When Jesus informed his disciples he's about to leave them and they are wrecked. Their lives have been wrecked. They've just been steamrolled. They've spent three years with Jesus of Nazareth and he is their everything. I mean, he is almost, and he's just told them, I'm about to be crucified and I'm out of here. You're going to be by yourself. They are crushed. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, all's not lost. Abide in me. I'm physically not going to be here, but I'm going to give the gift of the Holy Spirit of Christ and you cling to me. So for you and I, whatever trials and troubles, abiding in Christ is not only a distinctive characteristic of a true believer, but it is a great hope, a great comfort to troubled saints. And this morning, I want us to consider one other aspect of abiding in Christ. From 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. John. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. And now, little children, abide in Him. Why? So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Here's another, a third reason to abide in Jesus. Because He's coming again. And the only way you can have confidence when He comes and you're standing face to face before the blazing glory of the perfections of Jesus is you better be clothed and abiding in Christ because it's in Christ alone our hope is found. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We are but needy children. But Lord, Christ is the answer for our every problem. There may be many in this room who hear me say that, and that sounds like an oversimplistic answer. That may sound like I'm not taking everyone's problems at face value. I don't understand the gravity of it, but Lord, it's actually the reverse. It's we who don't understand the all-sufficiency of Christ. So, Father, would you help our unbelief, help my unbelief this day. Send your Spirit to open our eyes to see the fullness of Christ so that we would be persuaded and convinced He and He alone is what we must live upon. Lord, speak to us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, the title of this message, we're just going to call it Abiding in Christ, Part 3. <laughs>
not very creative. Abiding in Christ, part three. But abiding in Christ until he returns. I want us to consider three things under this topic this morning. Number one, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Now, we've talked about this in both of the previous sermons, but I think it's imperative for us one more time to revisit because John gives us some helps in the very text we're looking at right now. He's the one who tells us abide in Christ. We see it right there in verse 28. Well, let's let him tell us. What do you mean by that? So I want us to consider first, what, do we, what does it mean to abide in him? Second, why is it important? And we've already kind of answered that, but I want to drive it home. And then thirdly, what would it look like? To abide in Christ, because we're so easy. I am. Maybe you're not like me, but I'm easy. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've done that. I've got that. And just kind of move on. Is there some kind of objective manifestation that would give me a glimpse and say, here's how I know I really am abiding in Christ? And the answer is yes. So let's look at those three things together as quickly as we can together this morning. Notice 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 begins with these words, and now. So that implies that well, something's come before it, right? And now. So time's not going to allow us to explore that. But I will just make note of it. If you just raise your eyes a few verses here in chapter 2, what John has done here in chapter 2 is he has set up five self-examinations, five different tests to help the believer objectively discern whether they're true believers. And that's very helpful. We live in a day today where I, there's almost nobody I, I, I talk to when the topic comes up. Are you a believer? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, me, me and the big man, we're good, we're good. We took care of that years ago. There, there's literally nobody that I've come across in recent years who says to me, I'm not a believer, I don't care, I just don't. And I, I actually respect when somebody says that. But there are myriads of people who just presume, oh, yeah, yeah. Let's take. So how helpful is it that in God's own word, he says, here's, here's five objective tests. Here's what will be true in the life of a believer. And that's what he's done here in chapter 2. I'll just kind of note them for you. In verses 3 through, six, there's, 3 through 6, there's a test of obedience. Do you obey God? Number 2, in verses 7 through 11, there's a test of love. It goes back to what we said a second ago. That the ultimate defining characteristic of a true believer is love for God. He's the one himself who said, you shall love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so it would make sense that he upholds that as an objective thing. Do you love me? And then a third test we see in verses 12 through 14. It's kind of an experiential test. He talks about children or little boys and then young adult men, sons and then men. He's not just talking about men there. He's talking about Different uh, maturity levels of believers, young believers, kind of believers who are on their way, and then mature believers. But there's a test there in those. Number four, there's a test in verses 15 through 17 that has to do with rejecting worldliness. Worldliness. If you think back, not long ago, we were preaching through the churches in Asia Minor from Revelations 2 and 3, and over and over and over again, what Jesus is saying. As I go into these churches, as I'm visiting these churches, Jesus says, I have this against you. You gather together to worship a holy God and your thoughts are yourselves, your thoughts are the world. You've almost made me like one of you. And so a rejection of worldliness is a test of true faith. And then in verses 18 through 27, the test of doctrinal faithfulness. I wish we had more time to say about those things. I implore you, it will be a great benefit to go through that test. Please understand 
the results of it aren't always easy for me. And I'm your pastor. Maybe that's a problem. I don't know. But don't cavalierly answer those questions. Those are from God himself. Better to go through those now than we're standing before face to face with him and it's too late. But verse 28 begins with and now. So he's, he's building what's coming in verse 28 on the basis of what he's already laid out before us. He's laid out these tests of a sincere and genuine faith. And now he's, he's talking to these people, this church, and he himself knows these people intimately. That's why he's writing to them. He knows their background. He's, he's actually addressing a heresy that has come into the church and is trying to divide the church. And he believes them to be true believers. He believes because of what he knows about them that they're going to pass those five tests. And so that's why verse 28 goes, and now. He's not rushing past it, but he's saying, but here's what I, I've observed these five things in you. And now... I want to gently admonish you. I want to gently encourage you. What the grace of God has accomplished in your life. Those five things, stay with me. What God has done, having taken those of us, don't stop now. Don't think, whew, I passed the test. I, I don't have anything to worry about. I got my ticket punched to heaven. It's good. Verses 28 and 29 are him saying, please hear me. If by the grace of God, he has brought you from where you once were an enemy of his to where you are now. And now. Don't stop. Why would he say that? Do we not have myriads of examples and scriptures of people who walk with Jesus? They say the right things. They do the right things for a time. And then what? They don't finish well. Meaning they don't finish at all. Jude is the prime, uh, Judas is the prime example. He was one of Jesus' own disciples. And yet he rejected Christ. For you and I, by God's grace, I, I, I hope we've started well. And as the baton now will be handed off you, I, to another ministry, it's not time to take our foot off the accelerator. Now more than ever is the time to press on. Abide in the very things we believe about the fullness of Christ. So let's address those questions. Number one, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Three things. Number one, first of all, it means to live by faith. Number one, what does it mean to abide in Christ, to live by faith? And what we mean by that is this. You can't abide in something you don't have, right? You can't continue in something you don't have. So abiding in Christ demands what? You're in Christ. That you have at one time in your life clung to Christ. That you have forsaken all other things in your life. All other saviors. All other idols. All other treasures. And you have found in Christ your all. You've repented. And we've talked over and over. Repentance is not a prayer you pray at night. I'm sorry. Repentance is a person-oriented thing. Repentance is I have sinned, and in my sin, I have rejected a person. I've, re I've rejected God. I have rejected Him, His rule, His glory over my life. Repentance is not just I did something wrong. I mean, sin is not just I did something wrong. Sin is I drifted away from a person, from God, from Jesus. And repentance is not words I say. It is a return to a person. 
I have drifted away from you, God. And now in repentance, here's the sign that I mean it. Not that I pray a prayer in my bed at night that I'm sorry. It's that I literally, I'm returning to the person whom I departed. Do we understand that? It's person-oriented. And in order to be a true believer, all of us at one time or another have had, a, by the grace of God, a moment to where we've realized we're dead in trespasses and sin and we're in danger before a holy God because we've sinned against a person. We've sinned against God. Yet God in kindness came and got us. There's no explanation for it. I told God from the moment of my conception, I don't like you. I don't love you. I don't want you. I don't need your rule over my life. I don't need you telling me how to live. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I don't care who I hurt. I don't care what I do. And then God in kindness and mercy that we will never understand came and snatched you and I up by grace and brought us to himself. That's why we read in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved and that not of yourselves. There was never a moment where you came to your senses on your own and said, what am I doing? I sinned against God. I, I'm going to go back. That, that's, we're dead. By grace we've been saved. He's brought us to himself. For every one of us, in order to be true believers, there was a moment where God in grace changed our hearts, gave us a heart of repentance, a heart to see his holiness, a heart to see our sinfulness, and a heart to see that in Christ is everything that we need. Well, you can't abide in Christ if you've never been a recipient of that grace. There's nothing to abide in, right? There's nothing to hold on to. So the question for you and I, before we can even go deeper into what it means to abide in Christ, do you have faith in Christ? Do you see him and know him? Not just as a, a great model for how to live, a great teacher. He is those things, but that is so underwhelmingly dishonoring to him if that is all he is. Paul writes in Colossians, in him the fullness of God dwells. That's something you just have to sit on for a while. The fullness of God. God is eternal, incomprehensible. God has no boundaries. God has no limitations. There is no box for God. God, God is everything and everywhere and omnipotent in power and presence and glory. There is no boundaries to him. One song says he's a sea without a shore. He's a sun without a sphere. Meaning what? It just keeps going and going and going. And yet... We're told of Christ in him, the fullness, which cannot be bound, dwells in Christ. If that doesn't just make your head explode, then we've watered Jesus down to something less than what he is. What is the faith that saves? It's a soul-emptying faith that recognizes your and my helplessness, my hopelessness, that I have sinned against this God of perfection and there is absolutely nothing I can do to fix it. If I were today, this isn't even possible, but if even today I was able, I'm just going to flip the switch today, I'm going to pull up my bootstraps, I'm going to do better. 
And let's say you were able to string a couple of days. You can't. You can't string one day. You can't string a few minutes of life that's pleasing to God because He's holy. He demands perfection. That means even in the good things we do, our motives must be pure and completely enchanted by for your glory. And you and I as sinners are just far too self-centered for that. There's nothing we can do to fix our problem. So I empty myself of everything. I empty myself of all efforts to try to earn God's favor. And that includes... I empty myself of my sin. I empty myself of my righteousness, my church attendance, the sermons I preach. I got nothing. There's nothing I can offer up before a holy God who demands perfections because everything I have is stamped by imperfection. I empty myself of all things. And do what? Ascend the one thing he has provided, the one way of escape. And it's a person. It's his beloved, beautiful son, Jesus, whom he treasures more than anything. And we fall helplessly into the arms of Christ. And we put everything on him. If my sins are going to be forgiven, he's going to have to do it. And he does at the cross. If I'm ever going to stand before the face of a holy God and not melt like wax. And where do I get that from? That comes from even pictures we see throughout the Bible. That when Jesus returns in glory, that his enemies are crying out for the mountains to fall upon them. Mount Everest, bury me from the presence of the unveiled glory of Christ because I'm done. Well, how are you and I going to stand before that presence? Christ. Him clothing us in His righteousness. Friends, have you done that? For many of you, most of you, I've been your pastor for 16 years and there is nothing I've just said that is new to you. But I also believe this. You and I are commanded to constantly be making our calling and election sure. Don't rest on yesterday standing. What about today? How's your love for Jesus today? Your trust in Christ today? Your walk with Christ today? Have you surrendered everything to Him? You can't abide in Christ if you don't have Christ. And loving Christ is the hallmark of the true believer. The true believer loves Christ. Why? Because he's got no hope in anything but Christ. He loves Christ. He thinks about Christ, talks about Christ, speaks about Christ, reads Christ's letter to him, which is what? The Bible. In order to abide in Christ, you must be in Christ. How is it between your soul and the King of Kings? Number two, what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to continue in his word. You've got to first be a believer, but two, you've got to continue in this. This, we've always said, is integral to the Christian life. Because this is not just great stories. This is the revelation of God. How do you know God? It's right here. How do, you, how do you know God? You see Him in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what every page, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all about Christ. How do you abide in Christ? Let's be real practical. How is it between your soul and this book? 
Are you continuing to know Christ as he's revealed here? Or are you just living upon, maybe you grew up in church, you went to Sunday school when you were a kid, so you know all the right answers, right? We've heard the joke, the kids in Sunday school, whatever the question is, Jesus is always the answer, right? Jesus, Jesus, it's always the right answer. As I look around this room, probably all of us know just enough about Jesus to be dangerous, to think we're theologians about Jesus. Jesus is incomprehensible. In him, the fullness of God dwells. You don't master Jesus. There never comes a place to where you know him in his all-sufficient glory. You and I will spend eternity, if by grace we're allowed there, we will spend all eternity exploring the depths of the glory and the greatness of Jesus of Nazareth. And there will not be a repeat from one day to the next, there is always something more to know and to love and to adore. And for you and I who think we need so much of Jesus now, we'll sit there day after day after day with jaw dropped. I never knew. I never knew the beauty, the majesty, the glory. How is it between your soul, church, and the written word of God? If you cut yourself loose from Scripture, you are cutting yourself loose from Christ. Please don't hear me saying, if you're not reading your Bible, you're losing your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can't abide in Christ without clinging to the place where Christ is found here. I hear people say, well, my church is on the golf course. My church is going into the woods and going hunting. With all due respect, bull crap. God did not reveal his glory. He has declared his glory in the heavens, but he's declared his glory specifically in a person. And that person is recorded for us here. You cannot abide in Christ without abiding in the word. And I say this because it's only been true in my life. And I don't mind telling you, I'm confident that you will find, because it's been true of me, a one-to-one -one correlation. If you're finding in your life you have backslidden from God, you probably haven't touched your Bible in days, weeks, months, years. If you want to fight me on that afterwards, feel free. But I'll win. Because you can't abide and hold on and find your hope in Christ if you're not going where Christ is found. How do you abide in Christ? You've got to be a person of faith. Number two, you've got to abide in the Word. Number three, you must lean in on the Holy Spirit. Now again, it's always dangerous when we talk about the Holy Spirit because in general, nobody knows what in the world that guy's around for. And again, not guy, he's not a person the third person of the Trinity. But what Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit exists as a gift of God for one purpose, to draw attention to Jesus. That's it. 
It's like in these houses, and we've talked about this before at night. I aspire for one of these houses one day. You, you drive through these neighborhoods and these big, huge houses, and it's like, golly. And the exterior lighting, right? It's like on the ground, and it's like just illuminating everything. And it's like, good gracious, it's marvelous, it's majestic. Well, those spotlights are what the Holy Spirit does. It's just drawing all attention to Jesus. And without the Holy Spirit, tell me if this is not true. You can go to church and have no interest in Jesus. You can read your Bible, and you're reading, it's all about you. What does this book tell me about me today? What's my, I need a word of encouragement for the day. It's not about you. It's the revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, it benefits us, but God's word of encouragement to you and I every single day is Christ is enough. Whatever your problem, look to Christ. And if you hear that and you're thinking, Jake, you fool, you're one of those kooky Crazy people now who thinks Jesus is the answer to everything. Well, yeah. I don't apply it perfectly. I'm not right now. But I know for a fact that's my problem. That's not a sufficiency of Christ's problem. It's me who hasn't believed and appropriated what this book tells me about Jesus. And what is my great need? The Holy Spirit. Will you take this book and show me Christ? Show me Him. Help me take this and find in Christ everything that I need. Friends, you and I can't do that without the work of the Holy Spirit. Our prayers need to be saturated. You know, we do pray. There's an old book by an old Puritan writer named John Owen. There's watered-down books I would encourage you to get. It's called Communion with God by John Owen. And Owen does us a great service in that he does this, something that it was new to me, never thought of. Because God is triune in his being, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. When you commune with God, you're not just communing with the Father. You commune with Father. You commune with the Son, and you commune with the Spirit. And it just blew me away when I first was introduced to that. I was like, that's so simple. But, And one of the points he makes there is communion with the Father and Son is dependent upon communion with the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit's function in redemptive history to draw hearts to the Father, to open eyes to see the glory of Christ. So if you're here this morning, and I say this with all sincerity, and you're doing your best to follow me, I'm not always the easiest to follow. And you're also just not getting it. Like, I hear what you're saying, I just don't believe it. I would say, I get that. Because I was there too. And I still battle it. But the Holy Spirit has done something in me and many of us to show us more of the fullness of Christ than we ever thought possible. And none of us live it perfectly. But if you're here and you just is falling on deaf ears, the right thing to do now would be cry out to the Holy Spirit. Maybe, I, I don't know if this guy Jake is right or wrong or whatever, but Holy Spirit, would you help me discern that? Open my eyes and I would encourage you, this is where the Holy Spirit works. Open this book up. Pray over it. Show me Christ.
be involved in a church that is devoted to Christ. Let me ask you, how do we abide in Christ? You've got to be in the faith, clinging to this book, dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Are you abiding in Christ this morning? Are you living by faith? Are you trusting in Christ alone? I would guess, I would hope, your answer would be, not like I should. Not what I hope is, yes, absolutely. But I would certainly respect, not like I should. I seem to fall short in all these things. Well, then cry out to God. This is a means of grace, this last opportunity you and I have together. Whether you came here looking for this or you just came just to encourage the person you're with, God ordained this. So don't waste the opportunity. Cry out to the Lord while he may be found. That's what it is to abide in Christ. Secondly, why? Why would we abide in Christ in this way? Well, look what he says. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, And now, little children, abide in him, in Christ. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Two expressions he, there, he says there about they're really the same thing. The Lord's appearing and the Lord's coming. He's telling us, reminding us of something we are prone to forget. That from day one of creation where God said, let there be light. And God created a world for his glory and created you and I as human beings in his image as the pinnacle of his creative genius. There was a purpose behind it. God was not like that watchmaker who makes a watch and winds it up and then just sits back and lets it go and let's just see what happens. God is sovereign. God didn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's all sufficient in his glorious perfections. You and I exist not because he was lonely in heaven. There's another Sunday school answer. Why did God make me? I heard this when I was a kid because he was lonely. Well, that implies a weakness in God. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Why do we exist? For his glory. Just for him to go public with his glory. And so he who began creation also has in mind the end of it. This is what we're prone to forget. Sometimes we get so caught up in our lives, our daily lives, we live each day as though, I mean, we know we're going to die one day, but we live no real awareness of History has a destiny. It has an endpoint. There is an appointment every one of us have that when this life is over, either we die or the Lord returns. You and I have a face-to-face appointment with the Holy God we just sang about. The God who He Himself calls Himself in Deuteronomy 4 a consuming fire. A God who over and over, when even God manifests his glory, meaning it's a veiled expression of his glory, men and women fall down as though dead. I mean, don't we see that over and over? And you and I are going to stand face to face before him. 
It's so easy to get caught up in our own lives, our own goals, our own desires, our own sin. And then fall into the trap of thinking, this life's about me, what I want, what I desire. And forgetting, I was made for a purpose. And I'm going to stand before the one who made me face to face and give an account. Did I live for how he created me? Well, John's whole reason for writing this abiding here in verse 28 and 29 is for that very reason. Abide in him so that when he appears and you stand face to face before him. This almost, it's unfathomable. So that when he returns, you may have confidence. Now think about you, me, sinner who rebelled against this God, who told him, butt out. I don't want your rule. I don't want your law. I don't want your kingship. I'll be my own king. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'll marry who I want. I'll do what I want. I'll do it when I want. I'll do it why I want. And I defy you to tell me otherwise. And we're going to stand face to face before him. And John in wonder says, there is a way when he appears. We who've done all those things can stand before him having confidence. If if that doesn't make you shudder, then we're not thinking through all the dynamics right. We can do so with confidence and not shrink from him in shame. I'm all in for that. How? Abide in Christ. That's the only way. We must abide in him. All of life really is a preparation for that day. And we don't think about that. I don't think about it. Even as I was preparing this, I was like, I can't tell you the last time I thought about this. And I don't mind telling you that. Think about a wedding day. How a woman prepares for a wedding day. And I say the woman, not the men don't, but it's different. Except in my case, I was preparing. Everything's got to be just so, right? There's a countdown, 90 days, 80 days, 70 days. Do we have the right tablecloths and flowers and dresses and bridesmaids' dresses and makeup? And have we gone through the rehearsal and this, that, and the other? The countdown is on to wedding day when the doors will open and the bride will present herself to the groom. And all that preparation has been about making that moment perfect. Could you fathom, and I hesitate to say this because certainly this happens, uh, but just bear with me. Could you imagine that countdown, all that preparation and the doors open up and the bride is wearing sweats and no makeup and hair disheveled and, again, just bear with me. What what does the groom think? Hey, thanks a lot. (laughs) Thanks for preparing. I know how that sounds, but just bear with me. I'm making a point. We couldn't imagine that. We know that countdown, that moment. It's all about that moment. Most of you who are brides couldn't fathom getting to that moment and not being prepared. That's what John is trying to say here. Your life is on a countdown clock. And you will be presented to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And the question is are you prepared? Are you ready? In this life, knowing, now you don't know what that date will be, but you know you're on a clock. I know I'm on a clock. Are we prepared to meet 
the living God. What would it mean to be unprepared? To not be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. To not be clothed in Christ. Not to be found abiding in Christ. It would mean what? No confidence, cowering shame, and then what Jesus says to those who don't know him, depart from me, I never knew you. Go to a den of iniquity. The wages of sin is death. That's what a holy God must do if he's going to be just. We demand that of our judges, right? You've got to punish wrong, crime. God is no less holy and righteous. If we're not perfect, he must punish. We would say he's a bad judge who doesn't punish crime. God must and he will. And the only hope we have is abiding in Christ. Abiding in his righteousness, who he is, what he's done. When we fail, and we all do, running to a person. Not just crying out, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I did wrong, I'm a terrible person, I'm a horrible person, I can't believe this. Beating ourselves up. I, that's usually how I handle things. That doesn't do anything. Repentance is running to a person. There's only one person who can help me when I've done wrong. And it's Jesus of Nazareth who went to the cross and paid the penalty for that. Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't because of anything he did wrong. It's because of your sin and my sin. And to abide in Christ is to constantly be running to him, clinging to him, holding on to him. Listen. I fall short in every one of these areas. And I say that not to applaud it, but just to give you room to say, man, I'm struggling too. There are no hoops to jump through. It's as simple as, Lord, open my eyes. Holy Spirit, help me to see Christ. Open this book and run to Jesus. This is where you run to. This is where you find him. Here. And thirdly, I'm only going to have time to just name it. How do I know I'm abiding in Christ? Well, I've got to be a person of faith. I've got to be clinging to the Word, leaning in on the Holy Spirit. But is there anything that would give me evidence that, that, is, that I'm doing it right? That's not the right way to say that. Is there any manifestation that I can know it's real? It, and the answer is right there in verse 29. If you know he is righteous, who's he there? Christ, the one you're abiding in, the one you're clinging to. If you know he is righteous, then you may be sure of this. Here's how you know. Whoever practices righteousness has been born of him. This is that principle of the parent produces a child. How often... Do you see a child and you know instantly? I know who your parents are. I can see the face. I can see the bone structure. I know who you belong to. I get it all the time with my dad. And I bet some of you do too. That's the idea here. If you are abiding in Christ genuinely, I'm not just talking about having your daily quiet time. I mean seeking Christ, seeking to know Him, looking unto Him, holding on to Him. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 
and with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, we will be transformed into the same likeness from one degree of glory to another. The principle is this. What you look at is what you become. What you spend your time with is what you become. If you spend your time with sinners, don't, you're gonna, you're gonna, don't be surprised when you start acting like them. But when you spend your time with Christ, you should be, not overnight, it's not a quick process, but be being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. How is your righteousness this morning? I don't ask that to kick you if you're down, but simply to say this, if there is a pattern of unrighteousness, I'm going to stand by. You've probably not been in your Bible, not seeking Christ, clinging to Him. You become like what you spend your time with. And that does kick me in the gut. Well, this morning... I don't want to set a bar that you feel like is too high for you to achieve. There's nothing you have to do here. Cry out to God. If you sense your great need, ask Him to send His Spirit to open your eyes, to give you grace to become a person of the Word. Just start somewhere. Ask Him. If you know repentance is necessary, that you have forsaken God and you've gone your own way, well then ask for grace to return to God. I don't want this to be negative. If you're here this morning and you find by God's grace you are abiding in Christ, that you, all these things, you're like, I can't, to God be the glory. Right now I'm in a season of abiding in Him. Well, then rejoice, but don't stop now. Press on. Continue. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Church, our message has been from the beginning. Look unto Jesus. In Him, He's the author and perfecter of our faith. In Him is everything. My closing gentle exhortation to all of you. Don't stop. Don't stop now. Cling tighter than you ever have. Abide in Him. When you fall, and you will, like me, repent. Return to your all-sufficient Savior, King, and Treasure.